This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, an associate professor at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to John Roth about the book he co-authored with Leonard Grobe, Warnings, The Holocaust, Ukraine, and Endangered American Democracy, published by Cascade Books in July of this year. John, welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be with you, and thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. And um, you know, I I shared uh, before we got on here. I shared some some you know some personal things happening, and um, you know this book that you and and Lenny wrote. Um, it's uh, really a incredible and beautiful uh, sort of personal, philosophical, political. Uh, you know, advocacy, advocacy or activist journey um, through uh, your careers, through present day. And um, you know, I feel like there are so many questions I need to ask you that delve into the personal, um, but I suppose I could, that I could be expected because of the nature of your book. So maybe I'll begin with this. Have you ever written a book that so greatly intertwines your personal existence with your philosophical and political beliefs? I think this is both the uh, most personal book I've had a hand in, and uh, certainly the most political one. And this has to do with the co-authorship with uh, Lenny Grob, who uh, is a long, <clears throat> a longtime friend of mine. We've known each other for almost thirty years, and we've done uh, collaborative work together uh, from time to time. And in January of uh, 2022, Lenny and I were thinking about doing another project together. And one day he said to me, John, we need to write about democracy. And he urged us to uh, do a, a collaborative dialogical volume together, which was what we were planning, but we hadn't hit on a topic yet. And uh, when Lenny said, let's write about democracy, I said, yes, let's do that. But the understanding that we had was that we wanted to write about democracy in the United States, endangered democracy, as we thought of it, but through the lens of our work as uh, Holocaust scholars and scholars of genocide. And so the result was that we uh, proceeded to write uh, I call it dialogically. One of us would start out writing part of a chapter and then send what we'd written to the other person. And our agreement was that we'd ask each other questions 
and then we would respond to the questions, and all this would take place in the confines of a of a book chapter, and it went back and forth that way, and uh, no sooner had we started to write than uh, Vladimir Putin, in late February of 2022, invaded Ukraine, and uh, we said, okay, we've got to deal with that too, which meant a lot of quick homework on our part uh, to get up to speed so we could uh, incorporate the uh, invasion of Ukraine into our discussion about uh, threats to democracy at home and abroad. So the result was uh, that Lenny and I, who are both philosophers as well as Holocaust scholars, uh, ended up writing a book that probably had more politics in it and uh, political um, ethics, I would say, than we might first have envisioned. Uh, both of us are, philosoph as philosophers, we've always been interested in, um, in ethical questions and issues. And as Holocaust scholars, uh, we were well aware about how um, threats to democracy in Germany in the 1930s and then into the 1940s uh, contributed to the rise of Nazism and ultimately to the unleashing of uh, genocide against the European Jews. So yes, the book is uh, personal. Um, I'll, I'll add just a little bit on Lenny's behalf here. Lenny uh, comes from a family whose uh, his father's generation was basically uh, uh, wiped out during the Holocaust. Uh, Lenny's father, Ben Grob, uh, was the oldest of five or six children he was the only one who uh, left uh, Europe, the part of Europe where the Grob family lived uh, at the time of the Holocaust was part of Poland. Today it's part of Ukraine. And uh, so Lenny comes from a family of um, people who lost their lives in the Holocaust, and uh, he made a kind of what he calls a roots journey at, at, at one point in the 1980s to go back to Europe and to the hometown where his family was from. And he found the place where they had lived and uh, he left a kind of uh, memorial there. Uh, and that changed his life. And that's what led his uh, life to encompass a study of the of the Holocaust in a scholarly and serious way. So the book is infused with his personal experiences, and it's infused with mine uh, as well. I don't have any Holocaust survivors in my family. Uh, I'm, I don't, I'm not Jewish, I'm Christian, but uh, I come from a family uh, that uh, experienced uh, racism in the United States as I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s. And uh, this left a strong uh, impact on me. And as I gradually found my way into Holocaust studies, I learned that my own Christian tradition was deeply implicated in that genocide. And uh, that has uh, you know, affected my life and my thinking uh, ever since. So uh, this book has a lot of our own personal history in it. We're both in our 80s, so we've lived a long time, and, and a lot has happened in our lifetime, and, and we kind of use the book as a way of taking stock of 
what has happened to us and what has happened in the world during the 80 some years that we that we've been alive on earth here um, and the result was a book that has uh, political urging and political analysis and uh, political sensibilities running through it thank you john and uh, if we do the math, you said you're in your 80s and uh, you didn't know Lenny for about 50 years, uh, or sorry, you have known Lenny for about 30 years. So uh, what what happened around around your, your early 50s that connected you and Lenny? Yes, we first met at a um, conference at Dartmouth College. It's part of, was part of a series of a longstanding um, series of conferences and events that bring together Holocaust and genocide scholars. It's called Lessons and Legacies. Um, quite well known. It's been going on for, for many years. And uh, at the conference uh, that was held at, at Dartmouth in 1994, I was on a panel at that meeting where uh, people were discussing how different disciplinary perspectives affected their thinking about the Holocaust. And I was sort of representing philosophy on the panel. Uh, Lenny was in the audience for this panel, and uh, he's a philosopher too, as we've mentioned. And there are huge numbers of philosophers who are also Holocaust scholars. So Lenny was interested in what I had to say about how uh, philosophy fitted in with my uh, interest in uh, study and writing about the Holocaust. And after the session, uh, he came up and introduced himself. I, I was aware of who he was, but we hadn't met before. And uh, that meeting uh, at, at Dartmouth College was sort of the start of a long friendship that's been going on now for close to 30 years. Shortly after that, about two years later, uh, I responded to a uh, uh, a kind of call for applications that Lenny and a colleague named Hank Knight sent out. They were uh, organizing a, a symposium of Holocaust and genocide scholars that was to take place at the uh, British campus of Fairleigh Dickinson University, where uh, Lenny has taught for many, many years, the University in New Jersey. And they have a study abroad center uh, outside of Oxford in England. And so the call for applications coming from Letty Grob and Hank Knight was to participate in the symposium. I was on sabbatical in Norway at the time when I got this uh, invitation to apply. And I applied. And, and uh, fortunately, uh, Letty and Hank uh, accepted my application. And before long, I was uh, in England at Roxton College, where the first meeting of this uh, Holocaust Symposium took place. It brought together about 30 people who were from you know, an international background, uh, interdisciplinary and uh, interfaith and intergenerational, as, as uh, the, the symposium was described. And their writing circles formed. And uh, Lenny and I were in an early writing circle that was focused the, focusing on ethics and the Holocaust. And we met there for almost a week. And uh, one of the results of that was an early book about uh, ethics and the Holocaust that uh, had contributions from five or six people 
in a, in a dialogical format, very much like Lenny and I used in the book on warnings, is people would write, and then the other members of the circle would respond in writing, and then the author would respond to the comments. And these produced very interesting kind of dialogical uh, essays. And that's where Lenny and I got started and got used to writing back and forth with each other. We later did a book that was on uh, uh, Jewish-Christian-Muslim relations. We did another book that focused on uh, torture, all while using our kind of lens uh, of the Holocaust as the prism through which to you know, view these topics. We did, we did an early book on uh, the Palestinian-Israeli uh, dilemma, actually, that came out of the Roxton uh, circle that I've described. So uh, Lenny and I formed our friendship around, around writing, as it turned out, and it deepened, and we would see each other from time to time, but we live on opposite sides of the country. But through writing, we uh, deepened our friendship and found that we could uh, work together in a way that uh, made the uh, outcome larger than the sum of its parts. Uh, we we through our questions that we asked each other and our willingness to respond to these questions, we drove the inquiry deeper than uh, we probably could have taken it just by ourselves. Good, thanks, John. And um, yeah, I know Wendy's very involved right now um, in in issues concerning um, what's happening in in Israel and Gaza. Are are you two? Are the two of you? Having are you communicating uh, about this on, on on a regular right now, or um, what are those? And if so, can you share what those conversations look like? Yes, one of the results of uh, uh, the book warnings was that uh, through the good help of a um, uh, publicist, Lorna Garano, who helped us, uh, Lenny and I have been making some of the rounds on podcasts and interviews and things of that kind. And uh, they even have included uh, some occasions after October 7th of 2023 when Hamas unleashed its, uh, its uh, criminal attack on, uh, on Israel and Israelis. So we've been um, thinking about this uh, uh, catastrophe in uh, Israel-Gaza, and uh, undoubtedly, if we were still writing the book, uh, we would have had to include that event and uh, its aftermath, which is still unfolding, in our deliberations. And uh, uh, one of the places where I think there would have been a linkage, and I'm a, I'm a bit cautious about this, but it would have to do with the fact that what what has happened in, uh, in Israel-Gaza is partly symptomatic of the endangered status of democracy in the world. Certainly we know Hamas is uh, not a democratic organization. It, it, uh, it, 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 it has held its uh, Palestinian constituents uh, hostage in Gaza. But it's also true that uh, Israeli society in recent years has been struggling with uh, issues about democracy. And uh, some of those problems and questions may have led to uh, 
a bit of taking the eye off the ball in Israel that uh, left the country vulnerable to the uh, Hamas attack. So um, this is this is not written in our book at all. And as I say, I'm cautious about thinking about it. Uh, and I know that Lenny is very concerned about what's going on uh, there. So yes, you know these issues that we started writing about in. Uh, January of 2022 uh, have morphed and escalated and uh, led to increasingly challenging uh, considerations for um, how we think about democracy in in the world. And for Americans, uh, I think the 2024 election that's upcoming is undoubtedly going to be the most important election in the United States during my lifetime, because uh, democracy is clearly, you know, front and center on the ballot in that uh, national election that's now less than a year away. Thank you, John. And, um, you know, I, I guess the next question I would ask is, uh, you know, we're probably going to to move around a bit here, um, but you know, just from from what you just shared, how how serious is the threat to American democracy? Um, you know, in our previous chat, we talked about your book, The Failure of Ethics, Confronting the Holocaust, Genocide, and Other Mass Atrocities. And we talked a bit about bystanders and upstanders. And, you know, in this book, there there's a little bit in there about what it means to live democracy and, and not to let the dead who have, you know, made, you know, um, you know, keeping, maintaining, advancing our democracy essential to their to their own lives and their own you know being. Um, you know how I guess you know just not to repeat myself, but you know how serious is this threat, and um, what are the different modes of resistance available to us? And you know, thinking about it from a, a young person's perspective, and they see climate change, and they see war, and they see genocide, and they see food insecurity, and what would you say to a young person who'd say, you know, dialogue is not enough. Um, we need something more radical, more drastic. Let me go back uh, uh, to a, another part of my scholarly and teaching career to uh, address the cluster of questions that you've uh, <laughs> asked here now, Jeff, just for a moment. In addition to being a Holocaust scholar, uh, and a scholar of genocide and, and uh, a person, philosopher who's worked on ethics, I've had a long-standing, deep interest in American topics of one kind or another. And uh, for years, uh, decades, uh, during my teaching career, Claremont McKenna College, I taught a course that was called Perspectives on the American Dream. The origins of that course uh, are in Europe, actually, uh, I was on another sabbatical, uh, this time at the University of Innsbruck in Austria in the early 1970s. And one of my responsibilities uh, during that year was to give a year-long uh, lecture series at the University of Innsbruck for uh, Austrian students who were pursuing um, courses in American studies. They were interested in the United States and its history and culture and and uh, uh, literature and things of that kind. So for that lecture series, I hit on 
uh, the theme of the American dream, which is a longstanding uh, theme in, in American uh, studies. And I use that topic as a way of uh, organizing what I wanted to tell the Austrian students in the early 1970s about American culture and its history and literature and religion and, and other uh, facets of, of, of experience in the United States. And after that time, regularly I taught a course about uh, the American dream uh, to the undergraduates I was privileged to teach at Claremont McKenna College. Now, I mention this because uh, and during my teaching about the American dream, which survey, you know, the, the spectrum of American history and the, uh, all the dark sides of that, uh, of that history, uh, racism, the maltreatment of indigenous peoples and all the rest, but along with it, uh, we were studying the ideals and hopes that were part of American uh, history and, and even of American constitutionalism. And the idea that was present in the in the course was that, yes, we're it's an, it's an imperfect um, American, society, uh, but it's got elements that are ideal in it and that are aspirational and that uh, enable the idea of the American dream to have more than just a materialistic, meek money kind of uh, dimension to it. But at no point in my teaching, as as I looked at the scope of, of uh, what what had happened in the United States and in, in, in it and in its colonial history, did I have the feeling that um, uh, democracy in the 20th century in the United States, let alone in the 21st century, uh, was was going to be under severe threat? And lo and behold, here we are now, uh, moving into the uh, election cycle for 2024. And there is widespread commentary that uh, is saying of versions of what I said moments ago, that is that democracy itself is on the ballot in 2024. It was in 2022. And what we're, what we're seeing and experiencing is uh, that democracy in the United States certainly cannot be taken for granted that we could be headed... Uh, toward an authoritarian uh, regime, an illiberal democracy at best, uh, if we aren't very, very careful and diligent and uh, prepared to resist uh, the forces that are anti-democratic in the country uh, so that we can preserve and, and hopefully sustain and even strengthen democracy in the United States. That's, that's, I think, the, the struggle that is uh, before us. Now, um, I'm, I like very much the part of your question that asked about American young people and uh, people in their 20s and 30s and even in their teens who are looking at a, a whole set of issues ranging from uh, climate change to uh to politics that's gone sour, uh, to feeling that the American economy is not serving them very well. I mean, all, hardly a day goes by that 
that uh, we aren't reading articles about how uh, that generation is all but precluded from home ownership because of the, the costs and mortgage rates and things of this kind. And so the part of your question that, that asks, what would you say to people who may feel that, you know, democracy is, uh, it isn't working. Uh, we need, we need revolution. We need something more radical. Um, I guess the, the thing that I would say here is that we, we have to be careful what we might wish for. One of the things that Lenny and I stress in our book is that Americans either have uh, taken democracy too much for granted, or they may be too prone to give up on it um, and opt for some other kind of uh, strategy, either uh, adherence to a strong man like uh, Trump seems to want to be, or some kind of uh, revolutionary response that would be coming more from, from the left of the political spectrum. And I, I think what Lenny and I want to say is we think back about what's happened in the world that we've lived in and what we've studied uh, in the past. Uh, we, we want to say that Americans can scarcely imagine what it would be like to live in a society where the democratic institutions that we have relied on are no longer um, effective and, and strong and sustainable. Um, and that, I think, is something that deserves careful, uh, careful reflection. And that's, that's what I would be stressing with uh, young people who feel that either on the far right or on the far left, we need to have something stronger something more decisive than um, the democracy in its uh, American tradition represents. Thank you, John. And you know, in, in, in a way, this leads to uh, another question uh, about, you know, I, I, I don't know how much you are uh, reading up on this, but um, it seems like I see things are we regularly about the mental health crisis or, or however we want to describe it for, for young people, including you know, the students in higher education? Um, and we are seeing, you know, a little bit more about, you know, the, the impact of, of the pandemic and um, the switching of modes and other things on higher education, on, on professors and, and the stress, I guess in a lot of in some ways, maybe the stress that everyone seems to be under. Um, and I wonder, you know, maybe two things. One, thinking about, you know, your lifetime, um, are the threats greater today than they've ever been? Um, and then also, you know, how do you see the edu you know, the education system in the U.S. In, in its current state? And do you have any ideas about where it needs to go? I don't know if uh, we're in a situation that is more, you know, stressful than other points of American uh, history uh, in my lifetime have been. Uh, I, I grew up in a, in a family where my parents uh, experienced the Great Depression of the uh, late 1920s and early 1930s. And uh, I often, you know, heard them talk about that. And uh, I know it left a mark on them. Uh, that was certainly a, a dire time for American life. 
uh, this the civil rights struggles of the 1950s and 1960s, which I have some have some firsthand uh, recollection of and experience of, or certainly times where there was uh, violence and uh, where democracy was not in a in a healthy condition. Uh, the Vietnam War times were times of stress and strain on American uh, life and culture, and there was violence that uh, took place in the country in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. So we've been um, in a kind of roller coaster situation in the United States for much of my lifetime, and certainly even before that, where um, you know things seem to move in a more progressive, liberal, human rights-oriented kind of way, uh, and then they slide back and uh, there's there's an ongoing struggle. I think the thing that maybe is most different uh, right now is that we're coming through a period of time when uh, we came quite close, closer than uh, we might have realized at the time that our uh, peaceful transition of presidential power was endangered and where there could have been uh, something like a, a soft coup that took place uh, uh, on the national level in our country. And what we're now facing increasingly, uh, it's, it's, it's going public, is planning that's taking place looking toward the 2024 election that would uh, move with greater uh, intentionality and sophistication and planning toward uh, an authoritarian regime in the United States. Uh, there have been recent reports uh, in the New York Times and other places, and uh, some people are saying the quiet part out loud, that there are uh, plans actually underway at the time. Project 2025 is in general what this is called. Uh, to uh, move the United States toward at least an illiberal democracy, uh, if not toward a purely authoritarian kind of uh, regime. And I think that's, uh, that's something different, something that we haven't seen uh, before, at least in my lifetime, and it's very concerning. Thank you, John. Um and that you know, brings up uh, a line from your book. Um, you know, you write on on page nine. So this is in in the sort of introduction to the book. Quote: Success for the needed work requires being alert and prepared to cope with a persistent paradox. Democracy's existence invites its demise. Um, with what we're with what we're seeing and and the threats that uh, are yeah you know, the democracy is facing, have we? You know, have we gone beyond backsliding to, you know, a situation where I I don't know that I mean, do you see it as possible? It sounds like you do that the authoritarian elements could essentially grow roots, um, or or you know attach roots and then grow from there because you know there's obviously there's like democratic authoritarianism where based on who's elected there could be a period of 
you know, authoritarian type tendencies, if you will. Um, but it sounds like the threat is more than that now that it's it's starting to grow rather than just being like a, an anomaly. Uh, does, does that make sense? Yes, I think so. Um, I like the notion of uh, backsliding. Uh, Lenny and I didn't write about this overtly in the book, uh, at least not with that term attached to it. But but we've written about the the phenomenon of it, and it has to do with. Um, you know, a, a kind of um, attempt to uh, control uh, the right to vote, uh, to contest elections, to um, try to uh, dilute, uh, if not disrespect, the rule of law, to um, engage in practices that uh, kind of, in a, a sliding kind of way, move the move the culture and the country away from uh, democratic practices <coughs> to ones that, <coughs> excuse me, that border on, on authoritarianism. But those are not quite the same as what uh, was attempted in uh, the January 6th event, which was really more overtly uh, a, a violent overthrow of uh, certain traditions and uh, respect for law and uh, democratic process in the United States. So these two things are are not identical, but they're related. Uh, there can be a decline of democracy that facilitates the uh, taking over of democracy, even through kind of democratic means, through an election, let's say, that... Uh, would result in a, in a more authoritarian politics in the country. And I think that's the dilemma that uh, is staring us in the face as we approach November of 2024. It, but just on a, on a Holocaust note, one of the things that, that uh, Lenny and I kept thinking about as we were writing the book was the way in which uh, Hitler used democratic means in the German Reichstag in the parliament to win uh, dictatorial power. This happened fairly early after he uh, rose to be the leader of, of uh, Germany in 1933. Within a, within a matter of, of months, uh, he had engineered it so that the uh, German parliament uh, voted him a uh, dictatorial power. So he made use of democratic institutions in order to destroy democracy. And that can happen here in the United States too. Thanks, John. Um, you know, you, you and when you write about uh, you know, the importance of asking questions, um, you think about um, all you've shared so far and you write that, quote, asking questions is more important than getting what might be thought of as answers, because so often the answers we get are incomplete, short-sighted, limited and limiting, mistaken, partisan, foolish and false, life-threatening and life-destroying. Um, you know, I hate to sort of be focusing on the the areas that I'm concerned about rather than the areas that I'm, I'm more optimistic about, but um, I wonder, you know, 
is are we more polarized now than ever before? And you know, I, I in my notes I wrote you know civil rights era question mark because certainly the United States was polarized and Americans were polarized polarized about the rights of, of black people and the rights of minorities in the United States. Um, but are we more polarized now? And uh, do we ask questions now? Generally speaking. Um, the only do we only ask the questions to who we want to and the types of questions we want to make sure we get the answers that we want. Yes, I um, we didn't go down this path in the book, but uh, I'll I'll outline where I think we uh, should have gone because things have, have in some ways deteriorated since we finished uh, writing the book. Um, and it has to do with uh, the place of questions. Lenny and I as philosophers very much believe in um, questioning as the, the key way to advance inquiry. But part of the polarization that you're talking about uh, reflects the ways in which uh, questioning and questions themselves have sometimes been uh, subverted and uh, used in ways that can uh, be anti-democratic. Uh, there is a there is a form of questioning that can uh, raise questions that are problematic, that are that are bogus, that are uh, uh, like 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 keeping asking, "Well, wasn't the election stolen?" You know. Isn't our democracy failing? Uh, these kinds of questions, if they are just asked repeatedly, repeatedly, uh, without a kind of dialogue or a kind of ability to respond to them, the, the question, unfortunately, can become weaponized. And I think that uh, we, Lenny and I probably should have said more about that. Um, and we, we could have had you know, long historical precedent in mind in thinking about it this way, because, uh, for example, if you go back to read uh, Plato's dialogues uh, where Socrates is so important, the characters in the dialogue that Socrates is having to battle with are very often asking questions, but they're asking rhetorical questions. They're asking questions that are intended to mislead or to misdirect or to change the subject or to do, you know, all sorts of things that you can do with questions that aren't necessarily uh, positive and uh, helpful in terms of, of an inquiry that's seeking to find out what's what and what's true and what's right and good. But the antidote to that uh, has to include more questions. It has to include asking the questions back and asking the questions persistently to do what you know what Socrates and uh, Plato had in mind, which is that if the if the dialogue is pursued long enough, people will run aground. The people who are asking the bad questions, the misleading questions, um, won't be able to show the evidence. They won't be able to show what grounds they're thinking. And that's where the uh, asking of questions be, remains essential in order to disarm the 
question asking that is misleading, misguided, uh, you know, distractive, taking people down paths that are not uh, are not rational and uh, helpful. But you're right. I mean, the the uh, division and the polarization that we have in the country is deep, and uh, one of the ways that uh, we can see that is that even the process of asking questions itself uh, can contribute to the polarization, even though question asking remains uh, essential as a kind of antidote to uh, the triumph of that kind of uh, thinking. Thanks, John. And I, you know, you you talked about your communication uh, back and forth with Lenny and your friendship, and um, you know how this uh, sort of evolved into. Um, you know, taking on uh, a certain style in some of the books you wrote, including including the one uh, that we're talking about now. Have you have you ever been surprised by any questions that Wendy has sent you, or uh, or surprised by the direction a conversation has gone? Sorry, I know that's putting you on the spot here, but uh... well, I think uh, Lenny and I, uh, when we were were reading each other's uh, first essays with the idea that our task was to you know, ask questions back, um, we, we kind of approached that part of the writing in a friendly, no-holds-barred kind of way. That is, our intention was uh, we don't want any nonsense in our writing. We don't want you know, easy uh, postures to be in what we're saying. So... The question asking part of it was, uh, we have to hold each other's feet to the fire. And uh, the, the, the reason for doing that was because the things we were writing about are so fundamental and so important. So um, we, we tried our best to uh, uh, do what good uh, critics do. That is, a good critic will look uh, to help a, another person draw out or highlight uh, strong and positive things that they've said in their writing. That's one thing. And then the other thing is uh, a good critic will point out areas that aren't clear or that uh, seem insufficiently strong that need to be uh, defended more closely um, and so on. So, um, very often in the writing, my writing, my questions would challenge Lenny uh, on his position that uh, what we need more of is is real dialogue. And I would kind of press him about this, sort of in a way that you've been pressing uh, me a little bit in our discussion today, you know, sort of say, well, wait a second, can you dialogue with everybody? Is dialogue enough? And uh, questions of that kind. And uh, then Lenny would respond, and in the response, the uh, the things that Lenny wrote would go deeper. They would they would uh, take into account the questions, and I think we came out with uh, with a stronger point of view. His strategy with me very often was uh, to say, "Okay, John, you've been talking about you know um, you know things that need to be done uh, in order to." Uh, keep democracy from being further endangered or from 
being further in decline. And his questions would be, okay, where's the beef? You know, tell me, you know, tell me what, what, what we need to do, what can be done. Uh, how do we, how do we actually put into practice what you're saying? And when I, when I realized that this was going to be part of Letty's style in his question asking part of this, I used to almost dread uh, opening up the email attachment that I would get from Lenny that would have his questions in it. Because I knew, I knew two things. One is, uh, it, it wouldn't be a long uh, document that I was receiving. You know, Lenny was economical with his words and uh, it didn't take him too long to cut to the chase and get to the point. But I knew that the questions he was going to ask me were going to really be tough and uh, stretch me and require me to uh, uh, dig a little bit deeper. And this is part of what I mean in the writing. Uh, writers are often the, their own toughest critics, but there's also a propensity on the part of writers to you know, let things go that other people will pick up on and want to know about and hold you to account with respect to them. And so Letty did that for me uh, all the time. And particularly when we got into um, a chapter toward the end of the book about resistance, about, you know, well, what is it that people can do in order to respond to the endangering of uh, American democracy? Um, this was where Lenny was especially helpful uh, to me. And, uh, you know, where I came out um, uh, basically is, is somewhere like this, and it goes back to the point we were talking about earlier about revolution versus democracy. I came to the conclusion myself that um, you can't save democracy by being anti-democratic. This is the risk that's involved, that uh, when we ask, okay, what can we do in order to uh, save our democracy, in order to keep it from being uh, threatened? Um, well, I think, I think we, we can't sell out democracy by becoming ourselves authoritarian, anti-democratic, uh, let alone violent. I, I think we have to sink or swim with uh, doing our best to practice democracy. And one of the things that that means very, very strongly uh, for Lenny and me both is uh, we have to make sure that uh, the right to vote is protected as much as possible. We have to get people registered to vote, and we have to get the vote turned out. We have to get people actually to go to the polls and cast their, their votes. This seems small uh, in some ways, and maybe inadequate and insufficient, and yet I think it is, at the end of the day, uh, the most important thing that... Uh, that all of us who are American citizens of voting age can do. Thanks, John. And, um, you know, I had a, an excerpt out, um, and you, you kind of commented it already in, in your way there, um, but I wanted to read it for our listeners nonetheless. Um, as the book comes to a, a close, uh, you and Lenny write, quote, enlarge and fortify vigilance, perseverance, and justice. That's what Americans can and need to do now to protect and strengthen democracy. It takes force of will, assertion, and commitment to do that never-ending work. Um, and I noted, you know, in your lifetime, there have been periods of 
of progression and regression. Uh, and you just mentioned some things that that we that we need to do. Um, but is there anything else you would add to sort of how we've gotten to where we are now and what we need to do to get to a new turning point? Lenny and I were uh, on a, a talk show hosted by a woman who uh, has a, a program here's a couple of times a month called Be Bold America. And uh, she broadcasts over a public radio station in uh, California that serves uh, the Santa Cruz uh, area in, in that state. So she invited Lenny and me to come on the program, and, and uh, we had a conversation with her. And uh, at the uh, end of the interview, she said, I always like to end my interviews by asking uh, people on the program three questions. And she invited Lenny and me to uh, respond to, uh, to these questions. So the questions, and they're good ones, these are good questions that, that need to be asked and that can provoke good inquiry and conversation and even good policy. She said, the first question is, what should we keep doing? What should we keep doing? Second question was, what should we stop doing? And the third question was, what should we start doing? So I, I love these three questions. They, they'd be great for use in a college class or uh, in a public library conversation or in, in many venues. So uh, my responses to this uh, were uh, sort of in line with some of the things we've said. I said to Jill Cody, the, the interviewer, I said, what we should start doing is practicing democracy. We should, we should become active in it. Lenny likes to say that democracy is more a verb than a noun. And I think he's right. What he means by that is that democracy is, entails action. It entails taking responsibility. It entails doing things. So that's what I said we should keep doing. What we should stop doing, I suggested, and this is a key theme in the book that uh, uh, Lenny and I have written, and, and a point we, we haven't talked about, uh, you and I, Jeff, but what we should stop doing is lying to one another and telling lies big and small. Uh, when Lenny and I were looking at what are the factors that have most endangered American democracy, we, we, we believe that again and again, the common denominator of all of them had to do with lying, with disrespect for truth, disrespect for evidence, disrespect for uh, uh, even believing that there is truth to be found and that that has done uh, so much to undermine uh, faith in traditions. It's done a ton to undermine uh, confidence in American elections and a whole host of other things. So we should stop lying to one another. We should we should. We should reject the big lie and the small lie. Uh, and then what should we start doing? The thing I came up with in my answer to that was that we should start defending and participating in and supporting um, an institution that serves democracy that perhaps we haven't supported before. 
So I'll give you an example of what I decided to do. The next day after we were on, uh, Lenny and I were on the program with Jill Cody, I was listening to another podcast. Uh, this time it was the Ezra Klein Show, which is a, an important uh, podcast that features uh, significant uh, guests that, that he has on his show. And the person I was listening to is the woman who is the head of the American Library Association. Can't remember her name right now. But uh, she oversees uh, this national organization of uh, public libraries. And um, what I heard her t telling about was uh, the importance to democracy of an institution that we utterly take for granted in the United States, but that is a really important one, namely the public library, which has you know branches all over the place in towns small and cities large. And I listened to this podcast, and uh, one of the things I did after it finished was I joined the American Library Association. A very a small, maybe even insignificant thing to do, but I was convinced that libraries are an important institution in supporting uh, democracy. Because one of the things that happens when democracy is endangered is that inquiry gets shut down, books get banned, uh, decisions are taken that say you can't read certain books, and in some cases books are even destroyed. And we have seen some signs of this in the United States, and we know what happened in Nazi Germany uh, when books were burned and uh, inquiry was stopped and teaching was curtailed and censored. So uh, the, th this was an example to me of something that seemed small, but maybe was uh, more significant than it seemed at first. But what we should start doing is finding a new institution, each of us personally, that we haven't supported before, that is democracy-friendly, and to pitch in and do something to help you know, sustain and support that institution, because that will help to sustain and support democracy writ large. Thank you, John. And I, I noted down American Library Association. Uh, you know, my wife and I are, you know, somewhat avid users, growing users of the the library. That's, you know, that's probably about two tenths of a mile down the street. We live there in a very convenient location to make the most of such a public good. Um, so, you know, as we start to to wind down john i i wanted to bring us back a little bit to the personal um and you and your you, you and lenny dedicate your book to your partners who you write have taught you as well as their children students and friends and quote what respect friendship and love all essential for democracy at its best truly mean and require susan and win strengthen american democracy without them this book would not exist uh if i have this correct uh uh, as as we know before, you know you're you're in your 80s. I know this is a, a big and open question, uh, but can you take uh, talk a bit about your life, your life's work, and those in your life that have helped you on this journey? Um, yes, I can. I can do that. Um, there's so many, um, and and what I'll do is try to describe this in a way that uh, might resonate with with other people. Uh, my parents were uh, crucial in. Uh, forming my 
what turned out to be my philosophy. Um, I wouldn't have called it that when I was a boy growing up uh, under their uh, under their parenting, but it was true. Um, and then I I was fortunate all the way through my life to have uh, exceptional teachers. I can still I can still name for you all my elementary school teachers, and I can see them in my mind's eye. And uh, when I think back about okay, what did what did my parents and those early teachers impart to me? And I I think I would sum it up by saying that they. Uh, they, they imparted two things that were crucial. One was to treat other people fairly and respectfully, no matter who they were. And the other was uh, to do, do the best I could to make my life uh, worthwhile in the sense that it would help to make the world better. Now, all of that can sound kind of corny and very much like uh, cliche material, but I think this was, uh, this was what my upbringing uh, imparted to me. And then as I grew older and I, I got uh, into uh, college experience and I began actually to know what philosophy was and to study it and love it, I found myself uh, focused on what philosophers call the problem of evil. You know, and the questions that were embedded here is, why is it, on the one hand, that life is so good and so precious and, and can be so beautiful and full of love and, uh, and commitment, on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, life can be disrespected, trashed, murdered, uh, destroyed not only individually, but in terms of entire groups of people. And uh, that question became kind of part of my, uh, my life's pursuit, particularized by what I came to learn about uh, the Holocaust, about the genocide that uh, Hitler and the Nazis perpetrated against the European Jews, and uh, then a whole series of other, you know, atrocities that have happened, you know, since, since the Holocaust and that continued to happen. And as, as my life's journey took me into that darkness deeper and deeper, it also was taking me into reflection that was uh, ethical, that was about what is right and good and just. And as I thought about those things, I became a staunch believer in the value and importance of democracy as I understood it. And what I understood by democracy was a way of life that emphasized uh, human rights, uh, fair and free elections, the rule of law, and what philosophers call pluralism. That is the 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 notion that uh, a rich democratic community 
has in it um, diversity, culturally, religiously, um, politically, uh, in terms of, of culture, uh, it, it, in, including things like music and poetry and uh, even the food we eat, and that the, that these this difference, far from being divisive and driving us toward polarization and exclusivity, was to the contrary, inclusive and mutually respectful and uh, uh, encouraging. And, and that became for me uh, my vision of, of, uh, of democracy as I understood America at its best to be standing for. It's the, it's the uh, vision of democracy that you can find in the American poet Walt Whitman, that you can find in the rhetoric of Martin Luther King Jr., that uh, you can hear in uh, the poetry of Maya Angelou and, you know, a host of other American voices. And so that's what it is that, uh, that I'm wanting to defend and to protect from endangerment to the best of my ability. It's liberal democracy uh, in, the, in this pluralistic, inclusive sense. Thank you, John. Uh, I think that's a, a, a nice place to, to end. Um, I, I really uh, enjoyed speaking with you again. And, um, you know, I, I've, so, I've learned so much and I think I still have so much to learn from you. Um, if I uh, could ask you are, are you, are you resting at all or are you, uh, are you working on anything new? Um, I've been writing little short pieces um, of various kinds. Uh, one of the things that happened uh, as uh, our book drew some attention was uh, the opportunity to uh, collaborate with some journalists who were interested in uh, having Lenny and me uh, not not so much be interviewed, but write short little pieces uh, that they might make some use of in uh, articles that they were developing. So um, I wrote one piece, for example, about uh, the question about whether there was fascism in the United States today. And uh, it's interesting to me that this has been a topic that's been uh, under some discussion recently. There have been several um, studies and uh, books that have come out that are that focus on the 1930s and early 1940s in the United States when something like American fascism was definitely at play in, in our politics, including some Americans who were staunch supporters of Nazi Germany. Uh, so uh, to write a, a short piece, maybe 150, 200 words on, you know, what's the situation with fascism in the United States today? Uh, the, the writing like that has, has been uh, quite challenging. I had a, a part of my career earlier on where I occasionally wrote um, book reviews for the Los Angeles Times and occasionally opinion pieces for that newspaper too. And uh, I think it's a great discipline for writers to to write for newspapers or for uh, you know uh, magazines where you have to 
compress your thoughts into a few hundred words and yet write something that's coherent and uh, maybe even compelling to a reader. So I've been having some fun, you know, writing in that vein as opposed to writing in chapter length essays. That's great, John. Well, thank you again for your time. And um, if you have another book come out, uh, we can do it again. Well, thank you, Jeff. And I appreciate what uh, what you do with your program, because I think that uh, your program and others like it are themselves um, actions that uh, help to defend democracy. Thank you, John. Well, uh, thanks again and take care. Take care.